Of the $5 billion of U.S. beef exported around the world through May of this year, only $8 million of that has been to the continent of Africa. But Africa is a very promising destination for beef variety meats, a low-cost protein that helps meet Africa's nutritional needs. There's also some growing interest in higher-end beef cuts that draw interest from Africa's growing middle class. Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us today. This episode is sponsored by United Animal Health, a leader in animal health and nutrition. You can learn more about United Animal Health and how they're working to advance animal science worldwide by visiting the website unitedanh.com. Matt Copeland, the U.S. Meat Export Federation's representative in Africa, says that a growing population, an expanding need for affordable protein, an explosion in Western-style retail outlets, and some softening in regulatory barriers signals that the region is a potential growth market for U.S. red meat exports. Copeland explains how the U.S. Meat Export Federation, with support from U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Beef Checkoff, is laying the groundwork with importers, retailers, and suppliers to expand U.S. red meat sales in the region. Matt, I want to start because I think a lot of us uh, on this side of the Atlantic think about Africa in this sort of abstract concept. It's, 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 uh, it's not something that I think we really intuitively understand yet, just the diversity of opportunity within a huge landmass. Could you put into perspective the size and, and scope of the potential meat trade in uh, on the continent of Africa? Yeah, sure. Andy, firstly, thanks so much for having me. In terms of opportunity scale, Africa is immense. And to the year 2100, we believe the demographic population of Africa will still double from where it is now. And so when you think about that, countries like Nigeria, over 200 million people, South Africa, over 60, 70 million people, there's just so much growth predicted, strictly demographically. And then we have this wonderful concurrent emerging middle class who obviously previously been massively disadvantaged in terms of earning scale. Now, those folk are suddenly able to include more valuable proteins in their diet. And we see that in terms of an economic effect quite early on in terms of preference as soon as disposable income increases. So with respect to uh, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Gabon, um, Angola, Mozambique, South Africa itself, and obviously Nigeria, they are um, very big markets for beef variety meats immediately. So if we can gear well with those uh, independent countries and to gear well, we have to be able to speak Portuguese or French or uh, obviously English in terms of some of them. But to efficiently gear well with those countries, uh, each one offers brilliant opportunities in terms of sustainable growth, one, demographically, two, because they themselves are gearing up this middle class. So I'd like to answer your question and saying, yeah, sustainable growth to 2100 and certainly starting off at the lower end variety meets and emerging into some of the um, select and choice possible cuts. And then obviously for for places in Africa where the Gini coefficient is just massive, which, which it is in places like South Africa, in Nigeria, in Mozambique, some of the most um, heightened gaps between the haves and the have-nots in the world, those places obviously um, among uh, the wealthy 
they will seek out USDA prime beef because it's absolutely incredible to eat and people want experiences post COVID. Obviously, um, uh, we've had a, a wonderful boom in, in, in really enlarging and enlightening food experiences. And you described kind of how we start on that, that small end of things and then and see this growth. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, I, my, my observation has been, that's a, a pretty strong playbook for USMEF over the years in, in a number of the emerging markets where we've grown uh, beef exports and specifically meat exports more generally. When, when you look at that, at that playbook where I think if I'm reading this correctly, about $8 million worth of us beef exports to africa so that's a that's a drop in the bucket uh, big big picture what are some of the challenges that you face in growing that piece of the pie yeah so i mean straight into the nitty-gritty most of these countries they have very low cost of production land so to background cattle in Sub-Saharan Africa isn't the most expensive exercise in the world. Secondly, in a country like South Africa and generally in the static countries of Africa, we have unemployment levels higher than 40% in South Africa and for the region higher than 30%. What that means is people are desperate for livelihood. And in the U.S., we have incredible difficulties with regards to labor shortage. We have the opposite in Africa. We have... uh, uh, labor abundance and massive unemployment. And so on-farm jobs in Africa will be at the very kind of entry level in terms of costing to their farm and production costs. So in that respect, you have a very cheap cost of production of local beef, for example, in uh, South Africa, in Southern Africa, Namibia, Botswana. And what that means is, and, and, and the same in poultry to an extent, is the consumer is used to eating a different product. So um, it's a very young animal. It's slaughtered uh, between 14 and 15 months normally. It hasn't had time. It's been backgrounded on grass. So it's similar to an Argentinian or Uruguayan product. It doesn't have any intramuscular marbling. And the way the product is sold in store and in butcheries and what people shout about is it's all natural and it's grass-fed. And that story is going to be the story that's told in every retail and every butcher uh, between here and, and West Africa because obviously it's what we have and it's what we know and it's cheap to produce that way. It's very simple. As soon as you get into any um, uh, grading that includes marble score, uh, obviously um, what our farmers in the U.S. are able to do with Angus cattle as an example is just incredible. Um, and we see even some uh, white cow dairy graded programs individually that don't make roll because they're older animals, but they're still finished fantastically in the U.S. We see amazing marble scores there. And we see in South Africa and some of the other parts of Africa, a tiny little emerging drop of, of Wagyu uh, making its way onto shelves. And as soon as I saw that, obviously the opportunity was to start to bring in some of our, our, our super high-end stuff because um, we all know that actually – um, the richness of that product versus ours uh, also um, is not necessarily uh, the preference of consumers every time. So um, it's really cool to be able to tell the story, to be able to frame it in a different way. Um, that grain-fed beef actually uh, produces incredible 
caramelization of sugars, the malleate effects different, the flavor profiles are completely different. We do that work. That is the job of USMF to market. So we have restaurants that have come on board in South Africa where you can go and buy USDA prime steak now. And um, and we're proud of that. But on the other side of things is places like Morocco. We'd love to see uh, tourism, um, uh, so hotel sector, um, high-end restaurants there rewarded because they have consumers who would seek out this product and certainly be able to afford it. So there are opportunities like that, pockets of excellence all over the continent where we you know, Angola's like that, Ghana's like that. We've had um, uh, steakhouses also showcasing US, USDA beef, uh, USDA prime beef there as well. Um, Nigeria, unfortunately, we don't have access at the moment. Luckily, about you know, four or five months ago, we managed to get sausage access for the first time there. And so we're working on sampling our first orders at the moment into some of the big distributors there. And over time, hopefully, um, that can soften. They obviously, I think you, your question is great in terms of what are the, the, the barriers and the, the difficulties we face. The other is just this protectionist of their own potential local production at least cost. Um, again, uh, the Nigeria doesn't want our beef in there at the moment. However, in time, um, those folk, and, I, and I've been there recently, so I was in Lagos um, in May, and uh, I took pictures of Australian and uh, even some of our stuff that has come through via Benin. And all of those things are obviously complexities around the market. I think Benin per capita, and this is tongue in cheek, but they must eat the most beef and most chicken per head in the world. Just certainly because, um, uh, yeah, just the volume of trade that goes through there and into Nigeria is astronomical. So um, certainly each of these places, uh, there's always integrity issues potentially when there's new business that, it's done. Um, so you really have to watch your, you know, watch your P's and Q's with respect to how you build. Um, and I think the right way is to do it circumspectly, to do it slowly, and to to visit the markets and to actually spend time with the people so that you get a really good feeling for values and understand their history in the trade. Um, because, you know, in the past, Africa was seen as like a star continent that was, you know, um, a little bit uh, dangerous in terms of operation. And, um uh, certainly, uh, we've come a long way uh, from there. It's not that they're incredible entrepreneurs, incredible businesses that have been established here for many, many years. Um, and I can get into that a little bit later, but there are some fantastic people to do, to do, to do, excuse me, to do business with here. That's one of the things that I'm I'm really curious about because in listening to you describe uh, the the differences in different parts of the the continent, different countries, uh, the opportunities, and how they vary, uh, the challenges, how they vary as well. What what in general do you see in terms of things like the the state of the cold chain? I'm thinking about infrastructure more generally as one of the challenges uh, of getting product to places where we might be able to sell it. What, what what does that look like in terms of transportation, logistics, the cold chain, and, and so on? Where's that yeah. in the evolution of some of these developing yeah. markets? Yeah, Andy, so again, um, I wish you could see the pictures that I can visualize in my mind because we do have this incredible stock contrast between some of the parts of Africa that are incredibly well-developed. Uh, we'll talk about Victoria Island and Lagos itself um, or um, Luanda in Angola or uh, many, many cities in South Africa. Um, in these places, and I'm going to give you an example of uh, a big cold store um, uh, where um, that cold store is now picking pallets, um, 
uh, everything is algorithmically uh, programmed through their robot to conserve energy. And so they've removed a whole bunch of, of, of people from the cold store in terms of complexities, but it's also super efficient in what it's able to do. And obviously energy is an issue. And, and we have a massive electricity, complex, complex issues around electricity that um, that we try and solve. And so there's an example where I think in uh, Southern Hemisphere, there aren't too many of those um, robots running. And, and yeah, that's one just in Durban, South Africa. So I would say on the extreme end, I mean, we've got um, cold storage space. We lost about 50,000 or 43,000 tons to be exact uh, during the riots here a year ago. And a lot of that is being rebuilt. Um, and that was a very dark bit of our history. Um, and to see that and live through that was 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 quite a challenge for the industry because the working capital was drained and, and there's a slowness and product was destroyed. And then obviously freight's done what it's done. So it's just driven costs unbelievably high um, in South Africa itself. And that affects obviously all of the neighboring countries as well. But I think let's go further north. I mean, if you were to go up to Lumbumbashi uh, in the Congo, just uh, north of, of, of Zambia, you know, I've, I've seen there where there's this little belt of, of, of people on huge volumes of bicycles and those bicycles can basically carry about 800 kilos to a ton um, of product and so what this is it's a bridge between where there's no road infrastructure that's adequate anymore it's just been uh, you know through all of the trade it just doesn't function as well so you have literally reefer um, uh, trucks getting to a certain point and then these folk um, you know collecting and then taking into cold storage before it's going to be shipped away again so again there the cold chain certainly not standard, certainly broken compared to the standards that we would have in, in the West, but unbelievably efficient and um, providing a huge amount of employment for so many people. So it doesn't want to flex in the direction that most people think it should quickly. It, it just doesn't. So that problem's been there and it will carry on being there for quite a long time. I think then... Uh, individual consumers, do they have access to uh, refrigeration in all of their homes? Again, the answer is no. Obviously, we have a huge disparity of wealth spread um, uh, through all of these countries, you know, places like Cameroon, um, places like Burkina Faso, Niger. They are complex, complex places where communities will, will sort out this cold chain feature together, but they themselves individually just won't have it. So that might sound like it's a really poor opportunity for 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 our product to shift into because our product is premium. But if you think of variety meats and if you think about poor people dependent on fundamentally fantastic nutrition, and if you think of the way our beef production is growing, then certainly uh, this is a wonderful opportunity because there's just such a huge, huge volume of, of people requiring just um, incredibly uh, nutritious superfood like beef liveries. So I think there is sustainable. Yes, there's going to be growth. Does it look like we want it to look? Not exactly, no. But um, uh, will the demand increase over time? Absolutely, it will. Thinking about investment in the various countries we've been discussing, I have this impression from just a past reading I've done or past conversations on growing agricultural trade more generally with Africa. Uh, the discussion of investment in, in will U.S. companies or not just U.S. companies, but other countries from outside uh, Africa be willing to invest in the country the way they have in other parts of the world, given some of the 
uh, you, you talked earlier about some of the, the issues potentially with corruption and uh, some of those things. It, has there been improvement on that front? Do you, do you see companies and investors uh, willing to jump in with both feet, so to speak, or are some of the property ownership questions and some of those other more, yeah, more sure. investor concerning issues, are they, are they changing and improving uh, with the march yeah. of time? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that question uh, in a few different ways. Um, I've spent time uh, this week with the Agricultural Development Agency, which is funded out of the ANC. Um, it speaks to commercial growth uh, for local farmers in um, South Africa, particularly KwaZulu-Natal. And that group of people wanting to build and repatriate land into the hands of historically disadvantaged individuals they don't necessarily possess all the acumen to make sure that their product that they produce at the moment, those are sugarcane farms. Um, the recommendation is they become macadamia nut farms. They don't have the ability to fund the cash flow um, required for orcharding. And so for me, there is a very simple example where um, if uh, integrated market could be um, reverse engineered and uh, investment done on a basis where there was the willingness from both sides to collaborate. There's an opportunity uh, that is sustainable, that uh, benefits from the low cost of production here in South Africa and creates an incredibly uh, profitable crop um, and certainly highly sought after uh, in the West. So there's an example for you where I think um, if we were astute and patient and we spent time building the right people, controlling the right environment and including security with respect to the assets, managing those risks really well, managing the political risks really well, partnering with the right people, I think certainly there are opportunities. So that's my first answer. My second answer is if we looked at the development of retail itself, um, uh, ShopRite is a incredible business um, uh, based out of a headquarter out of Cape Town, a place called Brackenfell. And that business has over 2,500 commercial stores of its own, and it has another 500 approximately, 490 or so, um, uh, franchise stores. It has just uh, sold its brand name uh, in Nigeria, and I believe they'll operate under the ShopRite brand for a little while. But certainly places like Ghana, Angola, Zambia, Botswana, Namibia, uh, Swaziland, uh, Lesotho, South Africa, Mozambique, um, you will definitely, Zimbabwe, you will definitely see a ShopRite entity. They have a few different storefronts pitching to different parts of the market. Uh, you save um, the very low end uh, ShopRite, um, uh, the bulk of the market, and then uh, Checkers and now they're improving into a Marks and Spencer type. If you know the UK stores are probably similar to a Whole Foods, very premium kind of fresh grocer type um, through is one of their goals. What I'd like to say is they employ 140,000 people. Um, they have some of the most cutting-edge uh, marketing uh, strategies and social media and uh, other um, platforms um, that we are. Uh, yeah, I, I'm speaking specifically to category management and what they're able to do to for suppliers. Um, you know, they reach probably seven or eight million people a week um, on their social media platforms um, uh, with engagements. I think my point there is. Uh, we mustn't pretend that the humans that run retail in Africa aren't astute. They are incredibly wildly 
pioneering. And for many years, have been taking arrows in the front and the back. And so, um, Carrefour uh, from France are here. Obviously, uh, Walmart um, through Massmart uh, entrance um, uh, are here. And uh, there are a number of other um, kind of integrated chains who have invested in Africa all over the show. And for good reason, obviously, we talk about growth over time. But also, you know, um, the cost of borrowing um, uh, is is unrealistically high for most uh, um, uh, of these African countries. So again, any leveraged capital, you can you can produce things that other people simply don't have access to produce. So um, it is a exciting time, and it has been for a long time. Retail has done incredibly well. Um, obviously, pressurized COVID was, was devastating in terms of employment, but at the same time, um, uh, that sector was particularly robust. Obviously, the food sector all over the world and home delivery just took off unbelievably, you know, triple-figure growth in so many places. Africa wasn't left out, you know. Um, Africa is going to solve those solutions. So my third answer to your question is investments around um, the systems of business. So traditionally, we'd like to invest in places like retail outlets. You know, that was a big thing. And then now we've seen this emerging of these kind of two home deliveries. And uh, we're doing research. Um, you know, we, we, we want to be on top of things. So the last mile in so many of the forgotten parts of Africa is where I like to kind of investigate and make sure that we're being able to help with 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 perspectives, with opinions. You know, the last mile, it's so tricky because, you know, in the past it was brick and mortar and let's reach them. And maybe it's now a big container of villages of trade, which is definitely something that happens all over Africa. We're talking four, five hundred containers all operating in parallel, trying to compete for price, all fresh goods and massive, massive informal markets as well. But what we can see as well is this last mile, this last little bit where a consumer has reached off the back of a scooter or motorbike or and and perhaps investment in communication, which Africans absolutely believe in. Um, so our cell phone coverage and cell phone usage is off the charts. Maybe investment in reaching those people in the more difficult to reach places of the world, centralized refrigeration, then delivery to home. Maybe that model will be better than brick and mortar potentially long term so i think that's just a wonderful conundrum that faces investment at the moment particularly if i um you know uh, keen to distribute in places like ghana and places like nigeria um and, and places like mozambique i think that challenge you know in south africa we have massive urban centers and some folk have pioneered um, stores where you can order 60 items, they'll be delivered to your house under 60 minutes. And that was a progression through COVID. So I think, um, you know, uh, those solutions exist already. So, you know, um, it's, it is a complex place to invest. It's a wonderful place to invest. Um, and yeah, we, we, we traditionally are, are very resilient problem solvers. So it's not such an easy environment for newcomers. You know, Matt, as we finish up our uh, conversation here today about the opportunities and the challenges of getting more meat uh, trade in in Africa, let's talk about beef production specifically. Are there opportunities there to grow that industry? And what does that look like for, you know, the U.S. meat complex? You talked earlier um, in the program about some of the, the challenges growing beef production and the opportunities in the various countries we've been talking about, but but let's kind of bring this back around to to where we started with the actual production of beef. 
Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Andy, again. I think scale is just something that um, uh, the U.S. understands incredibly well. And because of the complexities, political issues, as you pointed out, some of the corruption issues, um, infrastructure limitations, um, we we won't be able to, through integrated agricultural um, commerce, we won't be able to produce enough product here successfully, not for the next 20 years, I don't believe. And that's not just talking South Africa, that's talking places emerging um, like uh, rural Nigeria, um, where you know they're investing a lot in making sure that they can get up and running. But again, just demand and demographic growth, it's going to increase and certainly um, uh, challenges around expertise and that sort of thing. It just doesn't mean that it's going to be a, a very simple solution for for the political um, governance of our region doesn't lend necessarily easily to to solving kind of the, the food capacity and food shortage issues which we face. So I believe that, you know, um, commercial partnership, some of the biggest companies in the world obviously are doing research at the moment down here because it would make sense if they can benefit from some of the low cost of labor, low cost of land. But again, that is American capital looking for a home for a good return. So in that respect, I think um, there certainly are opportunities and on the other side, uh, you know, it's not, for me, it's not a threat. Whenever we, um, whenever we talk marketing, and I'd like to, if you don't mind, Andy, I'm going to go a bit big in the marketing phase here. You know, we want to grow categories. That's what we're about. US, US pork into these markets, US beef into these markets. If we can shout all day, and we do, we are very loud on some national television advertising campaigns. We national uh, large social media campaigns in West Africa and Southern Africa. We've got um, uh, moving billboards, truck advertisements, big cold, you know, um, big rigs uh, with our branding moving up between South Africa and Zambia and Angola itself and in places like uh, the Congo Point Noir. I think the point I'm trying to make is... Um, Every time we're investing, obviously we're growing demand. Uh, the variety meets 30 to 50 percent, depending on which variety meets on the beef side, is going to hopefully be an American bought product anyway through the frozen chain. So we just keep on investing, keep on investing. But at the same time, we're very conscious of image and we present um, USDA prime beef as a hugely aspirational. Uh, product and we connect with our consumers on social media, their four or five posts a, a week, um, just appreciating meat, uh, talking about obviously some of the differences between the product we present and the local stuff, the nutritional value around the product to educate consumers. We've had our marketing material translate into French, into Portuguese, into local Zulu, local Posa, local Afrikaans. So we're still trying to reach down to reach that individual and help them understand there's just something better for them out there. And I think, yeah, I've mixed, I've mixed this, I've blended this question. My point is um, we're going to reward consumers long-term by investing in this market. We'll reward all producers long-term by investing in the market because the categories themselves are naturally going to grow. The other side of it is we present USDA beef as the most aspirational product that we can in that sector and um and and that is well presented and i think 
obviously the volume products at the moment um being the variety meats we're also speaking to consumers on a on a regular basis because they've they've had unbelievable astronomical food price increases in this region and so for a family to have unemployment that means there's more responsibility on other people to try and support them or the breadwinners trying to make their dollar go a little bit further by introducing extra couple of meals a month in terms of the variety meat space you deliver incredible nutrition to those that you care the most about so honestly i think also um without you know getting into the motion of it um the u.s uh, beef variety meat sector is very important long-term to Africa's nutritional requirements. My thanks to Matt Copeland from the U.S. Meat Export Federation for his insights into a developing destination for U.S. beef and pork. You can read more of our coverage of the global meat trade in the pages of Feedstuffs. You can find the July issue now by visiting Feedstuffs.com and clicking on Digital Editions. This episode is sponsored by United Animal Health, a leader in animal health and nutrition. You can learn more about United Animal Health and how they're working to advance animal science worldwide by visiting the website unitedanh.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, or check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.